Dr. Simon Malte is an active cardiac surgeon and author of Healthcare Anonymous, Learn How to Put Yourself First While Pursuing a Calling. He served as a previous vice chair of the Mayo Clinic, has a doctorate degree in biomedical engineering and heart regeneration. He's an internationally recognized leader in the field of heart transplantation, mechanical heart devices, and alternative cardiac interventions. He's also worked in two different countries in health systems and provides a unique perspective on the delivery of care and its inherent challenges for healthcare workers, particularly in these difficult and trying times. Simon led two world-renowned programs in his specialty and has pioneered numerous novel approaches for advanced cardiac surgery interventions. At the age of 35, he was among the youngest promoted associate professors at a nationally recognized institution. He is a frequent keynote speaker. He has published more than 160 articles and contributed to numerous books. He sounds like everything your department chairman hoped you would be. And if you were anything like me, a bit of a disappointment. Turns out all that success wasn't making Simon happy. It was a pressure cooker that finally cracked. So we talk about the toll it took on him personally, his family, his coworkers, and his HR department, and the insight he gained on how to keep yourself out of that pressure cooker. He talks about the fulfilling life he has now built for himself and how we can do the same. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. And now a word from this week's sponsor, Laurel Road. Since I had my son, paying down my med school debt has become my top priority. I remember holding him in my arms for the first time, looking into his beautiful little face and just wanting the best future for him. With the Laurel Road Student Loan Cashback Card, my regular purchases earn me 2% cashback when I use it to pay down my student loans, which helps me reach my goals faster and plan for my family's future. Laurel Road for doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctor checking for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA member FDIC. Dr. Simon Malte, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hi, Brad. Thank you for having me. What we're going to start with is your explanation of why you decided to go into cardiac surgery, because I've heard you discuss this before, and I think it gives a good window into who who you are, right? The type of person you are, or maybe who you were and not who you are currently. So let's let's start out with that. Why did you choose cardiac surgery? Well, I think I, I think I've explained that before, but the uh, I mean, I was going to go. I wasn't just going to go in medicine. I wasn't just going to go in surgery. I was going to go in the absolute best uh, specialty or the highest sort of intensity specialty I could get in, and it kind of fits in. Uh, so I applied in neurosurgery, which I actually started to start with, and then went to cardiac surgery for sort of personal reasons, but. Um, but yeah, it sort of speaks to the the uh, the drive, right? That uh, constantly I had since uh, since high school, really, to always get to the. I was president of the med school. I was the captain of the soccer team. I was the. I was going to be the heart surgeon, not just a heart surgeon, but I was going to do heart failure surgery. So it really was driven by a sense of accomplishment. Um, and then a lot, a lot towards uh, what people thought of me as opposed to what I really wanted to do. Okay, so uh, internal, uh, so using external 
um, cues, I guess, validation. Yeah, that's a better word, uh, rather than internal validation to choose your specialty. Uh, in some ways, I mean, of course, I was always driven by the the physiology of the heart, the complexity, and the technical abilities. But uh, it was a lot driven by what what others were going to, how others and how people are were going to perceive me um, as a person um, treating those patients, uh, and not by, as I said, you know, the uh, internal motivation to sort of really do something that it, you know perhaps would have fitted better my personality, so to speak. So in in retrospect, do you think you realized at the time that you were making the decision to choose that specialty uh, from external validation? Well, in some ways, I think that, I mean, I, as I said before, I really like the specialty, the challenges, the technical challenges of it. Uh, but I, I do feel a good part of my of the decision to uh, go into heart surgery was driven by a sense of accomplishment, a sense of of you know shining uh, and sparkle, you know, in the eyes of others, uh, and, and and to be in a in a field that was driving was at the uh, at the highest sort of intensity I could get into, so to speak. And do you think you'd still make the decision now? Uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I, I do feel like I, I've acquired a, a pretty good set of skills and I feel like I'm really helping patients. Um, the, uh, I probably would, would, uh, would tailor my choices to a lifestyle that would, was, would, would be feeling fitting me a bit more. Uh, the reason why I'm saying that is heart surgery is heart surgery. It's really hard to get away from it. Um, meaning you can control your schedule, but there's a lot of emergencies. The patients are there. The cases are complex. And so, um, and, and, and more and more complex. And for that reason, I think, um, uh, and, and my, my life at the moment is a balanced one where I value, you know, a lot of other things sort of work. And so that specialty, while I can function with it, uh, pretty well right now, I feel is, is, is a, is a stamp pretty good stamp on my on my lifestyle, you know, uh, that's hard to get away from. Yeah, I can I can I can appreciate that. Um, so something from your bio kind of threw me off, right? So I'm just gonna read it, it says before fall uh, before 40, Malte had raised uh, has raised to lead two world-renowned programs in his specialty and has pioneered numerous novel approaches for advanced cardiac surgery interventions. At the age of 35, he was among the youngest promoted associate professors at a nationally recognized institution. He is a frequent keynote speaker, has published more than 160 articles, and has contributed to numerous books. So um, that sounds like the department chair that we all had that expects us to be as productive as them, right? But but now you're now you're you're speaking about work life balance that, you know, it doesn't sound like balance to me. That sounds like, you know, <laughs> no, I mean, it is. a. It's sort of this. I felt like I was in a sprint, right? Constantly that I was this in a rat race, you know, uh, and was certainly not a marathon. And, and you're right. A lot of the historical, uh, I'd say, images or models that we have are people that. Uh, I've accomplished that much, but I think I talked about this in the book, but um, really rarely uh, these people that are usually president of the associations and committees and things that we look up to, uh, if you look at those presidential addresses, 
uh, at the end of their year, they usually have these moments where they say, well, you know, I want to thank everybody. And they do a little retrospective review of what they've accomplished. Most of them at the end will finish by their family by saying how lucky they are to have a supportive group of people they have not seen, you know, and, uh, and, and I think that's tragedy, you know, to have models. I mean, heart surgery is pretty new specialty, still about 60, 50, 60 years uh, in. So we still have a lot of those models. The only way to be a chair or the only way to be uh, at the top of, of an institution is to have that type of CV. And in some ways, maybe I won't get to be a chair one day, but I, I was, I was um, you know, I was right up there in the one of the busiest heart surgery program in the world. So uh, I, I value, uh, you know, I think I, if I would have to choose a chair, I would want somebody to value the family time and time away from work uh, and not the amount of paper. Thankfully, I think it is changing a little bit. So how did you arrive at this revelation, right? Because you, at, at one point you were really gunned for this position. You were, you weren't, and it sounds like chairman wasn't good enough. Like you had to be chairman of like the, the, top program in the country. And, right. and then from there, right. What maybe, you know, president of the hospital. And then, so, so where was the revelation there that you, you wanted more balance? Well, it just started to add up. I mean, it, it just started to, uh, the little stuff, right. The, the didn't want to go to work necessarily. It was always tired, always angry. Um, you know, the complications became a complication. I didn't care as much the lack of empathy for, for, for the patients. So little signs of depression. And um, that became really good sign of depression. Um, and little uh, failures as well at work, you know, frequent visit to HR, uh, not being really fired, but asked to think about the long-term plan, you know. Uh, Was this while you were at Vanderbilt? No, no, I left Vanderbilt for the Mayo Clinic. Uh, uh, you know, because uh, at the time Mayo Clinic, uh, you know, it was sort of this, uh, I had, um, you know, I had trained there. And so it was the best place in the world to do medicine. So uh, it was a great promotion. Um, so, but, you know, I was never for, so to speak, fired to, from a place, but uh, there was always these, these struggles to function, right? So sort of the, although I was super busy, um, you know, there was some professional challenges, some uh, some colleagues being angry, and I was angry at some people. Um, you know, the outcomes were good, uh, but it was just it was just not a uh, easy travel through the you know through through pro through work. While a lot of people liked me, a lot of people hated me. <laughs> you know, it's interesting uh, that the, the reason I ask about Vanderbilt is because about a year ago I had William O. Cooper on the show. Mm -hmm. And he runs the coworker observation reporting system at Vanderbilt, which is where they have these anonymous, this anonymous oh, yeah. reporting system. Yep. Right. Where, and it oh, sounds yeah, like that, that was, so, so is that what you're referring to? No, I mean, some of them are anonymous. Some of them are not so anonymous. <laughs> okay. A lot of the hospitals have this, uh, have this uh, ability to report stuff, right? Most of them I have now, and that's a tragedy too, but that's a different type conversation. Um, I can't recall how they called it then, but everybody, every hospital has a name for it. Basically, for those listening, it's a system for which um, uh, you can report someone or something anonymously uh, in it within the hospital 
and then uh, your chairman gets a letter and then the HR gets a letter and then and then you sort of call to speak about it. And so, uh, I mean, I had some of those. Um, and then I guess the relation that they found uh, in the hospitals is if you have more than a certain amount a year, it puts the hospital at risk of, of, of lawsuits and things like that. And so it's a way to track, you know, uh, collaboration and people's work through the system. So, but yeah, I, I did have some of those. Most of those weren't like, you know, say these fireable things, you know, like the, the big four or five things you get fired from, but they were like angry stuff or things you've talked to people that way. And, and, um, and, and, but they are serious stuff. I mean, it's not like you should treat people a certain way, but uh, I was so anxious. I was so, um, I'd say, uh, depressed about work. I was so like focused on Simon that I forgot that a lot of the things I did were, were driven by the people around me uh, and, and that they made me who I was at the moment, meaning leading a growing heart transplant, heart transplant program. So then where was that revelation, right? You had said like you, you were, you were, you were angry and it sounds like it wasn't that you know, as driven as you were and successful as you were, you weren't maybe thriving as much as you expected to. No, exactly. And then some doors were closing at work. So that's one point. And then personally, uh, I was drinking more. Uh, I got through divorce. I had financial issues. Uh, you know, some of the, a lot of these things started to add up. And, and while they all seem separate, uh, they all sort of were related to uh, what I talked about in the book, uh, what I described to to be healthcare disease. So basically a person within the system that has um, this chronic misadapted process with the work and, uh, and whether it's driven by models or personality traits or external pressures that you can't really control. Uh, I was at, at a point where I thought, well, you know, I should, I should be at that point in my career, uh, but then it seems like everybody's driving the opposite way. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm accumulating personal and, and professional uh, failures. And so something's got to give and, and something gave, you know, I like to, uh, you know, I became the, like to this expression from Jim Carrey, where I became this, I created this avatar myself to function through life and work and family, where at some point I, I just couldn't, uh, it was about three or five years ago, three or four years ago, I something had to change because I was either drink myself to death or I was gonna lose jobs and jobs and 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 or be by myself because nobody wanted to be around me. So, um, so so yeah, so I, I hit rock bottom and my I, I had a depression. I um, and I uh, I mean I honestly just needed just deep. Uh, rest and, and uh, sort of a refocus on, on what I was, where I was heading. So it sounds like one of the takeaways is self-assessment, right? And so that's something you talk about in the book, right? right? Your, your virus scan. Right. So what is that? Uh, you know, it's, I think it's an important step because people talk about mindfulness and the importance of sort of be present and things. I, I call this virus scanning just, you know, from the healthcare connotation of it, but I think you need to find a time every day to say how you, to, to, to sort of stay out loud or write it down and say, how, how do I feel right now? And it could be 
tired. It could be anxious. It could be hungry. It could be, you know, that you miss people, but it's important not just to get through the system and be caught in the vortex to take time for yourself. And maybe that, you know, if you feel like you're too anxious, that you have too much work to do, but maybe you do need to make an effort to slow it down, to decrease the number of cases, to make room in your schedule. You know, there's this book that's called The Unicorn Space, Unicorn Space. So to create this space around yourself, and that means letting things go. If you do want to operate more, you can't do all the meetings, you can't do all the publications, you can't be the teacher. Uh, so, so there, there's some, some things got to give. And that's, that's what I meant by that. And, and I would go even a bit further. And I, I don't think I described this in a book, but I give a lot of conferences and, and, uh, and, and people talk about this pie, right. Every day or in your life, right. The family, the community, the work, the health, the, the pie of things you have that are important to you. <laughs> I think, I'm sorry. I think that pie needs to be a proactive one, meaning on a daily basis, assess how much time you spend in one quarter of that pie. And uh, and if you do have a lot of work, that happens. Uh, well, when you get home at five, you shut everything off and you sort of switch by, whether it's going to the health club or whether it's spending time with your family and kids. So on a daily basis, try to balance that pie as opposed to do it on a six months time basis. You know, I think that's, that's something that helped me anyway. That reminds me of a Kanye West lyric, right? I'm either getting, I don't know if this is uh, appropriate for the audience, but well, whatever, this is my podcast. Either I'm getting paid or I'm getting laid. And it seems like when I'm getting one, the other one's getting away. So, right. So what you're saying is I've got these finite ob number of obligations and each morning I need to assess which one I'm going to be devoting more energy to because it's, it's work-life balance. Um, but it's, it's, it's fluid. Right. It's, it's not that like, and it's, it's you know, day to day. Right. And it's attaining a state of flow. I, I call I talked about this in the book, but it's, uh, it's getting to a state of flow in this, in this high intensity environment. Cause you know, the system is what it is that, you know, it's like holding a glass of water. The glass of water always has the same weight. And if you hold it for a long time, um, that's where it becomes real heavy. And so, the system itself does not change, right? So there's constant things that you need to be aware of, the patients, the finances, the new policies, the whatever. So that comes at you. And so it's if you let yourself being sort of battled, you know, one way and the other, and, and, then, and then get into this, this vortex, uh, that's where you sort of lose focus. And, and I think it's, 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 that's why I talk in the book, it's refocusing it to be in control of it, to sort of be at the center of this storm, right? And the eye of the storm to say, I control what's going on around me, whether it's schedule. I respect a lot. One of the surgeons I, I did not get along with at the Mayo Clinic who said, I'm going to do one case a day. That's it. One case a day. I'm going to be done by two but I'm going to be focused on that case. You know, most of us, all nine of us would do three or four cases. We just go around and do many, many cases. And, and that's where the anxiety kind of gets created. Doing too much creates anxiety. And that's, that's a proven fact. And so controlling the environment is, is, is what, is what I think one of the key of, of this attaining, uh, getting to flow state is. No, that, that, that makes sense. Um, I mean, I can, myself, I am, 
what after my second son was born i stopped working weekends and i was like yeah when he's sleeping through the night i'll start working weekends again and i you know most of my practice is outpatient i'm not doing you know high acuity stuff uh unless i'm on call um and then uh he's four and a half and i'm still not working weekends and uh and then you know and then with COVID, i stopped working nights because we really contracted our hours and um I'm not going back to nights uh, if there's some, something happens that I need to, but right now I do bedtime with my kids every night and you know, they're two, four and six. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna miss that. That's not going to last much longer at some point. They're not going to need me. And then fine, I'll go back to working nights. But right now they're, they're my priority. You know, the, the thing that we, we don't realize is those moments. I mean, I can't, there's numerous moments. My wife, my ex-wife now used to say, um, I don't put my expensive makeup before I get physically in the car on the way to the restaurant, right? So, because I used to say, oh, I'm sorry, I got a call, I got to go. Well, I got to I gotta do this, so I'm taking phone calls, or I got a dissection, a partner needs help, you know? Uh, and I was doing heart transplants. A lot of it was was sort of this constant roller coaster of unpredictable schedule. Um, but you know, we are all just another bozo on the bus and all these little things get chipped away, right? This time you lose with your family, it chips. You don't think it, it's uh, the analogy was heart failure. Every time you have a heart failure episode, you know, you think you get back to where you were, but you don't. You just get to where you were a little bit lower than before. So that that's the same concept. Every time you cancel those family obligations, you miss the play, you miss this, you don't take care of yourself it chips away until you hit the rock bottom. And that's what I, the concept of this chronic disease where you hit, when you hit this acute moment and the burnout, the anxiety are acute moments where you just can't function with, with this chronic problem anymore. Yeah. One of my, one of my partners said when I had a, like a pre-K play to go to, and I knew, you know, when, when my son was in that play last year, he got off the stage and sat in our laps and watched his friends in the play. So we didn't like, we didn't even watch him. Um, <laughs> so when it came up next year, I was like, do I like, do I take off half a day and miss out on like that revenue to see him not even stand on stage? And one of my partners said, you know, once you start saying no to this, you're going to start saying, you're just going to keep saying no to everything. Like you got to see just things you. like this. You got to say, you got it. You don't miss this stuff. Um, because it's going to be very easy to keep saying no to everything. Yeah, and, and then you, people normalize this stuff. Oh, you know, I'm a heart surgeon, so I, I need to be like that. I mean, that, that's what I did. I normalized my behavior, the way I was angry or the way I was sort of anxious. Uh, so you normalize and, and you accept stuff, right? Um, and, and that's the danger, I think. So some of it comes from this pressure to produce, right? In, in American healthcare, we often feel like we're revenue generating machines. Like when you buy an ice cream shop, the ice cream machines are what generates revenue. So when someone buys an ice cream shop, that's what they're buying. When someone buys a medical practice or a hospital, they're buying us, right? We're the revenue generating machines. So, but, but in the Canadian healthcare, right? You're Canadian. So the Canadian healthcare system is mostly socialized. So do physicians there still feel that same pressure produce? Absolutely. So there's a lot, that's a different conversation, but there's a lot of different pressure. Well, first, this pressure of producing and the financial aspects of healthcare, that's all brand new. It's common to US and Canada. But 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 
you just treated patients. I mean, the Mayo brothers were working with zero salary every year to take care of patients, right? So, so this whole concept of producing and percentages, that's where the that's when the system got taken over by, that's a personal opinion, but by administrators and MBAs and, and, and where hospital became businesses, right? And, and that's the reality we're in. Now, to that point about Canadian versus US system, I think that the challenges are, are similar, uh, but the accessibility becomes way harder in, in Quebec and in Canada. There are over 2000 people waiting for heart surgery right now at home, you know? So that's something that we don't see in the US. You need heart surgery, you get it within, you know, within a month at the most, you know? Um, and so, uh, so that's, that's one. Now the government pays your salary, right? So there's a lot of competition between physicians for access to the operating room, um, the better, more paying cases, um, the better sort of more paying revenue generating patients. So between between um, between them, there's a lot, and there's a certain amount of spots for patients too, right, in the hospital. So so if you take one or two patients that are too high risk in your practice, you sort of clog up the system for your other partners to do. So it creates a bit of resentment between people. Um, there's always a competition of salary. Uh, nobody gets a fixed salary, but it gets paid by the X amount of patients and reimbursed by the government. And that that's another issue because the government over the last 10 years hired a lot of people, like usually they're retired doctors that will look into what people are billing. So oftentimes you'll get an email three months later after receiving the money, oh, we're just taking out $5,000 off your account because you were over sort of paid for that. And like, what? What, what, why is that? So, and it's, if you don't work, you don't get paid too, right? So uh, for example, I was in Montreal for probably two years, a uh, couple of years ago. It was inevitable when I had a, there was a, a snowstorm or uh, it was sort of the holidays or there was like the flu season. We were missing a lot of nurses. They would go from six ORs to like two ORs. And then, uh, and then you would get a call in the morning. Say, okay, Simon, this is your week to day today, but your two cases are canceled. So the patients would get home. Uh, and it was about, and I had about 30% cancellation rate. So I knew exactly when it was a little snowstorm, which is pretty frequent in Montreal. I would just walk towards the coffee shop and wait for the call. And they would just call me and say, well, today your day is canceled. And so, so much that the, that people don't know that, but so much that the patients have a, a little kind of star or two stars between their name and that right next to their name because the patients are giving a lunch they go back home and when they come back to the surgery they have a star they've been canceled once right so if your patient hasn't been canceled your partner gets the room you know what i mean so so it creates this sort of constant management and it creates a lot of resentment resentment between people so the stresses are there they're just a bit different a little different interesting interesting um so so you know, we discussed the the high intensity life that you that you used to have, um, and then but reading about your hobbies, it sounds like this has been replaced with other high intensity activities, right? So again, from your bio, um, you know, so so you're working as still you're still a uh, cardiac surgeon, uh, but you're now taking acting classes. You play tennis. You swim. You bike. Uh, and and now you know what we're talking about now is you're building a coaching business to mentor 
professionals in high intensity professions, right? So, right. Uh, so, so it's, it sounds yeah, like there's kind of replacing I mean, one for the other. All of this together, yeah. you know. Uh, so what does a typical week look like for you? Right. So, I mean, a typical week would be probably three. Well, first I found that I am working in the system with partners now that we all have the same mentality. Uh, we've created a lot of free time at work with uh, our employees, you know, so people that work in secretaries and things where usually by noon or 11 on Friday, everybody's out of the, of the office. So uh, we created that. I mean, that's sacred. You can't take that away. Right. So, so you can't, but, but, it, but, but the turnover is great. The people don't go and now the, the department has went through a whole big uh, rearrangement and it's a hospital in Montana uh, within uh, Intermountain system. It's a pretty big system. Um, where we all think the same family first, you know, balance. So we have about 10 to 12 days uh, off a month, you know, so full-time is 18 days. So that doesn't mean we don't go to meetings and things and virtually assist the things, but we, we are on call 10 days each a month. We're three of us. So, uh, and then, so when we're not there, you, I mean, unless you need advice and things, uh, we can't get reach. It's, you know, so, so, so you take that time off. And so typical week when I work at work, you know, now is uh, probably three or four days of one case every day. Um, so I'll, I'll sometimes I'll add a case. Most times I don't. And uh, usually Friday afternoon, it becomes more of an administrative day. And then I have a half clinic uh, somewhere in there. So it's more controlled, usually by two, I'm, I'm done. If I have a quick case, I'm done by 10, 30, 11 uh, in the morning. So it's not that the three or four cases where you start at 6.30 and you're done by seven or eight, but like the, I was at the Mayo Clinic. So the volume is a little less. And when I'm on that, that time off, that's where I, I, when I'm at work, I'm efficient. When I'm on that time off, that's where I work on the other things that sort of allow me to keep the balance and things. Um, the acting classes are sort of hit and go, you know, hit and miss. It's really interesting the science behind acting, and that's what really triggered me to, uh, you know, you read scripts. It's like in school, you analyze stuff, and that really got me outside of my head to sort of read scripts and and learn things and sort of different uh, ways to present things and and different ways to learn how to be an actor. So it was really interesting to to just get out of my and, and I don't really do acting auditions for a few things, but nothing, uh, nothing serious, so to speak. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. But if you bring the same intensity to that, then we'll be seeing you on the big screen soon. <laughs> That's right. Or maybe Netflix. That's right. Maybe Netflix. But, you know, the, the point is, is, is trying to not have all of this because I remember one of the big things for me was to was to was to realize that work wasn't working. Right. But because I had put in so much intensity into work, the, the pie was solely around work. When that falls off, I mean, it, so you lose all your sort of um, your your grounds and things. So now, you know, if the acting doesn't work, I don't really give a, you know, if I if I if I play tennis and I suck that day, that's okay. You know, so there, there's like that there, there's a bit of more balance to, to this. So so tell us about the book. Yeah, the book is uh, is is really about. Uh, I mean, it's a bit of a journal uh, that I've started during this process, following a coach and following a, a personal coach, uh, and then uh, and then it's really it became more of a self-expression of things that were going well, not going well, 
and then as I started to speak about those things, um, then people came to treat their story. So we describe uh, to tell their story. So we describe basically these acute moments like burnout, anxiety, alcoholism, personal things as acute problems in a more of a chronic disease where uh, if you don't if you don't fix the bottom line, basically, you just constantly back into these cycles where you can you know wake up and you're 10 years out, you've been to HR, some of these coaching stuff and and so, and so, and so the disease is really described as, as a, as with three poles, like any other disease, the host or the person that's contracted it. Uh, and then we describe the traits, the characters, the perfectionism, the things that are important for the person that's within this, uh, the environment. So the pressure, the system, uh, the cases, the finances around it and things like that. And then, and then finally the ways you, the, the what, right? So the, the ways you've adapted you, yourself within those things. And we describe this as a triangle, the epidemiologic triangle, where if you, if one of those things doesn't sort of fit together, when, when they all come together, that's where you express the, the disease. And if you want to change something, then you got to change the interaction between those things. I love it. Love it. So what, what's the title of the book? Healthcare Anonymous, Healthcare Anonymous. Uh, it is also translated, and it's it's a bit of a wink to Alcoholic Anonymous, which I had to read at some point, but it describes, um, it does describe a bit the shades of gray of what, of what depression and anxiety looks like. You know, we think it's a bit, if you read the Alcoholic Anonymous book, there's a story about the guy that's on the street with the paper bag, but most of the stories are really milder sort of things. The woman that drinks at 9 a.m. with her kids at home, the guy that goes back to, from work and stops by the bar and it's sort of functional people. So it describes these stories of shades of people that have developed these maladaptive process within the system. And it's, it's really an, an open heart dissection of, of people's stories. I mean, a, a good third of the book is really uh, testimonies. Great, great. Well, one one final question. Um, throughout the interview, I've seen I've seen this thing behind you. Um, if you turn around, it's like a stair. Is that a stairwell? Yeah, yeah. And are those stairs alternating? Like each, what is going on back there? I'm sorry for those because this is primarily a podcast, but now I have a YouTube channel. This, what is that? Is, can you just explain what we're seeing there? Yeah, hold on. There you go. So the, the house has four stories, right? So okay. it's a it's a new house. We just moved. Actually, it's kind of empty. Uh, but the the last floor is where the gym is, and it gives access to the top rooftop of the house. So it's like a uh, it looks like a firefighter stairwell. It goes straight up, you know, okay. uh, and it goes to like on the left. There's a gym. And then on the right, there's a door to the rooftop. So it's like a, it's a special access, but you know, it's, it's probably safer to go up than to go down. <laughs> yeah. 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 Bit of a liability. Well, especially after a workout when you're I told my nine-year-old boy, you can't get up there. And, uh, and my wife and I have reminded ourselves to take her socks off on the way down. Cause that's usually a pretty slippery oh. sort of neurosurgeon type concept. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Healthcare Anonymous, Simon Malte, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Brad. Appreciate it. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage 
Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.